Good morning, everybody. If you haven't met me yet, I'm Stephen. I'm one of the elder candidates here to Lafia. And I get to bring the third installment of Advent Conspiracy to us this morning. Hope you enjoyed our video. I love it and uh, get to see it every week and I see something different about it. Uh, possibly because through the preaching it kind of illuminates different aspects of it and makes more sense as it goes along. We're <coughs> preaching through a series called an Advent Conspiracy. So let me pray for us this morning and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gift to us. Thank you so much for coming down to us and being here with us. God, I pray that you would lighten our hearts this morning. God, I pray that you would allow us to hear what you have to say. God, I pray that you would give us grace, give us peace to go throughout this holiday season and focus on you. Amen. So we're going through an Advent conspiracy. The past two weeks we've been going through this, and we've been bringing focus to and clarity to this thing that we call Christmas. Why do we make such a big deal about it? What's it all about? You know, <clears throat> as you may have gathered from the promo video, we don't think that it's all about the presents and all about the to toys and the trees and the lights and the parties. We believe that it's all about Christ. And what we're conspiring to do is to bring together the clarity and display the wonder and majesty of God's most precious and priceless gift. Not only that, but we're also conspiring to bring that gift and that message to everyone around us, those in our homes, in our workplaces, in our parties that we go to, our coffee shops, restaurants, everywhere we go, we want to bring that message with us and influence everyone that we meet for Christ. Now, I don't want you to mistake the word and the connotation that we're using on the word conspire. It's kind of like an underhanded word with a very negative connotation. You know, we're not trying to do anything illegal here. What we're doing is a conspiracy because it is so opposed to the culture around us. It is so different from what's going on and what everybody else thinks that Christmas is, that it's as if we're going behind their backs and we're trying to change what we believe and what people think about Christmas. We're going to take Christmas back through our worship, through our spending, through our giving, and through our love to other people. Kevin, two weeks ago, uh, brought us the first installment of this series, and he told us that we need to worship fully. And that as we hear this word Christmas, we need to be thinking of the word Advent, which means a coming. Now, specifically to us, the Advent is the coming of Christ. The time where he condescended to come down off his throne and live among us. That this should inspire worship within us and inspire us to worship fully. That it should cause us to move in worship. That, that worship doesn't just stay stagnant inside the worshiper, but it, it goes out and it blesses other people. Derek, last week, challenged us to spend less this Christmas season, except where we spend more. As you saw in the promo video, 
uh, they calculated out to be like over a trillion dollars worldwide that people spend on Christmas. It's this extravagant time of excess where we buy things that we don't need and buy more and more things that we do need but really don't have the time for it now because it's just such a good deal and we just couldn't pass that up. Derek challenged us last week uh, with the idea of using our money to bless other people. Using our uh, charity and, and not just skimming off the top layer of what we make and giving to people out of our excess, but giving sacrificially. And he, he gave us this quote with C.S. Lewis talking about that and, and, and about how we <coughs> should have things that we are not able to afford, things that we are not able to do because we are using our money to build the kingdom of God and for his glory. We should have things that we are not able to spend money on. This week, I'm going to challenge you to give more. At this point, you should be asking yourself, how am I going to give more if I'm supposed to spend less? If I don't have as much funds available for giving, how am I supposed to give more? I'm glad you asked that question rhetorically. <laughs> because I'm going to answer it. I want you to give more presents this year. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. What's going on? Give more presents this year. I'm serious. When most of us think about Christmas, our brains automatically go to probably four things. At least they do for me. Gifts, parties, vacations, and the extravagant amount of money that we're going to spend on those things and how are we going to be able to afford them. How much stuff do we buy in this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Now, how many of you, when you guys see your coworkers, your friends after Christmas break, are going to ask these questions? What'd you get this year? What'd you do this year? Where'd you go? Now, why do we who know better ask those questions? Why do we who know that the season is all about Christ ask those questions because we are so caught up in this cultural phenomenon that is a Christmas that we just get pulled along by the overwhelming pressure of this season. Where do those traditions come from? Last week, uh, as Derek was preaching, he told us the answer is actually a biblical one. Why do we give gifts and why do we spend so much? Why do we give these gifts? Well, it's because God gave us the most precious and priceless thing that he had at Christmas. He gave us the presence of his son. He gave us Jesus. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Our text that we're going to go through uh, is one that many of you or most of you have either heard or memorized as a kid in Sunday school. Almost everybody learns this verse, John 3, 16 and 17. How many, how many know the verse by heart? Good amount. Now, if you're like me, you memorized it in the old King Jimmy, and the ESV is going to sound a little weird because we don't use begot and believeth and stuff like that. So it's going to be for us on the screens, and, and I'm following Kevin's lead from a couple weeks ago. I want to ask us all to stand and read the scripture together. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Thanks, that was fun. Sit down. I want you to notice that phrase in verse 16. He gave his only son. The most precious thing that he had himself. He came down to live among us. In response to our need, God gave us the presence of his son. Now, something that's interesting about the ESV, and I'm sure that you noticed it, is that it excludes this word begotten. How many of you, by show of hands, have seen that word in other translations? How many of you have seen it anywhere else? Really, John? Good job. I haven't. The only place I've ever seen it is in the Bible. I mean, there's two or three places it's in there. But that's the only place I've ever seen it. And I think that's why the ESV chose to exclude that word in their translation. But that word is important. In the Greek, it's a compound word. It's two words mashed together. Monos and genos makes the word monogenes. Now, monos is, it means one. Uh, monosyllable, monogamy, it means one. Genos, it means type, kind, or offspring. Now, you biology majors ought to know this word or ought to have heard this word before because it's where we get the word gene, genetics, the study of heredity. It's that offspring aspect of this word. Another place in science, this word shows up again. The word genus, as in the taxonomic rank, you know, when we were in biology, everybody had to memorize the, the taxonomic rank, domain, kingdom, file, class, order, family, genus, species. Anybody remember that? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. It's that same word in Greek, genos. In this case, it means type. Now, monos, Jesus was God's only offspring. The translation of that word monogenes as begotten is easy for us to understand because the Bible uses familial terms for how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. We have the Father and we have the Son. The Father leads and provides and the Son submits and follows. That's how they relate to one another. But we know God did not procreate. We know that Jesus was not a created being. So let me propose to you this morning a more full definition of this word begotten, this word monogenes. Jesus is the only one of his kind. There is no one and nothing like him. God gave the only one to us. The advent is the real miracle of Christmas the coming of Christ into human form. Fully man, fully God, one being. Here to us, born in the most humble circumstances. 
born of a disgraced woman and a construction worker. They were very poor. God stepped down off of his throne of glory and stepped into this world as a poor kid born in an animal feeding trough in a tiny town in dusty Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Judea, that place. In Jesus' own words, he liked to call himself the Son of Man. Kind of like saying he's a chip off the old block. He's man. He is just like man. He was emphasizing there his human nature. Other biblical authors, uh, the apostles called him the Son of God to emphasize his divine nature. Look at what Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says about him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, also talks about him. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14 goes on about him, saying, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How can we ever become callous to this message? How do we ever overlook it? But I do it. Christmas time comes around, I want to watch the Christmas carol and Christmas vacation and have a fire because it's nice and cold outside, or cool. Sorry if you're, for you who are up north. We think it's cold. But the infinite creator God of the universe, who created the majesty of the stars, the vastness of the universe, created the oceans and the forests and the mountains and all of their beauty. He made it all for Jesus. He is the center point of creation. It's all for him. And he came to be with us. He came to be incarnated as a little baby in Bethlehem to grow into a man, to live a sinless life, and to die for us on the cross and forgive us of our sins. Christmas is all about his presence. Jesus is God's greatest gift to us, and he was present with us. Matthew 1.23 says that Jesus is Emmanuel, means God with us. Presence is a gift. I want you to start to see presence, your presence, as a gift to others this season. Jesus demonstrated that by giving his presence to us. 
He does it all throughout the Gospels. There's story after story after story of God giving his presence to us and, and being with people. Everywhere he went, Jesus always made time for others. No matter what he was doing, no matter what he was teaching, he always stopped and was with the individual in front of him. We're going to look at five ways this morning that he did that. First, we're going to look at Matthew 8, 1 through 3. Jesus gave his presence with his hands. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, as many of you may know, from the standpoint of Jewish culture and just practical wisdom, it is not smart to touch a leper or be anywhere close to them because it is so contagious. It's extremely contagious. Beyond that, 2,000 years ago, there was no cure. It was a death sentence where you would have your nerves and your hands and feet start to deaden and you wouldn't feel anything your extremities would start to fall off. It was a horrible disease. And naturally, people didn't want to get it. So lepers were ostracized from society. They were outcasts. Nobody wanted to go near them. Nobody wanted to touch them. And they spent their life from that point on without any human contact. Uh, some of them lived in leper colonies, so they had other people to talk to, but certainly didn't touch each other because there are different forms of leprosy. And they're all contagious. So you might have one form, and that guy's got another form. I don't want to go be near him because I don't want that too, and he doesn't want what I have. But look at what Jesus did in verse 3. He stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. There's story after story after story of Jesus doing this stuff touching people to heal them. Now, Jesus is God. He didn't have to touch people to heal them. And occasionally, he didn't. Occasionally, he said the word and they were healed. But more often than not, he would go to people and he would put his hand on them and he would touch them and he would heal them. Touch is very important to people. It conveys a sense of closeness, a sense of care and concern. When you reach out and you touch somebody, it shows them that you care about them. One of my favorite memories is from uh, this conference that I went to years ago. And uh, this well-known pastor was speaking at the conference. His name is Rick Warren. He wrote a few books, uh, Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. That wasn't supposed to be funny. <laughs> he wrote a few books. There's like 30 of them, sorry. Understatement. Um, and he was, they were very popular a few years ago. And uh, at this conference, before he was speaking, there was a worship service. And so I was seated pretty close to the front, and uh, I saw Rick Warren come in the back door and uh, start making his way to the stage because um, worship, worship was wrapping up. And as we were singing, I just felt this presence behind me. And it, if you've ever been around Rick Warren, the guy's like 6'4 and my size, but 6'4. Big dude. And he has a very commanding presence in a room. You can, you know. And, and I heard something behind me. 
And I turned around, and there's Rick Warren standing there, and he goes, do you need a hug this morning? <laughs> I was like, sure. <laughs> How do you respond to that? I don't know. But it meant a lot to me that he did that. And, and as I saw him continue making his way to the stage, instead of ushering people out of the way, instead of asking people to move, he would ask them if they needed a hug. And he'd hug them and then continue on his way. Jesus did that stuff. Wherever he went and wherever he encountered uh, people, he would be with them. He would be present with them. Who do you guys know this holiday season uh, that could use your presence? How many of you know somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of friends or a coworker who nobody really likes? You can just go and touch them on the shoulder and say, hey, how are you doing? It's been a while. I'm glad to see you. Jesus gave his presence. Second way that he gave his presence is through his words. Look at John uh, 8, 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he w came to the temple, and the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they told him, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have something to charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let one who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What an incredible thing to say. Because he is the one who was without sin. Jesus gave his presence to her through his words. What I, look at, what I see when I look at this verse is I see him talking to her when everyone else is talking about her. Now, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, so we can assume that it was rumored about or she was a notorious person or, or maybe she was even a prostitute. But she was been talked about and then people knew. And even in this area, they brought her to Jesus, and they were talking about her to Jesus. And Jesus addressed her. He spoke to her. That can mean a difference for a person when you talk to them. Something else is that Jesus interceded for her. When people were around condemning her, he spoke and interceded on her behalf. He spoke in her defense. Words matter a lot. And the lack of words matter a lot. I encourage you this morning, don't be a bystander. When you see 
someone being oppressed or someone being talked down to, don't be a bystander. Use your words to be present with the person. Use your words to intercede for them. A third way that Jesus gave his presence was through his time. Luke 19, 1 through 10 tells the story. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who was, but, or sorry, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to go that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down from here, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of what I have I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this home, for also is a son of Abraham. And the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did for one what he could not do for many. Zacchaeus needed the gift of Jesus' time. Jesus couldn't spend one-on-one time with everybody. He had a very limited amount of time here on earth. He only lived 33 years before he was crucified. And only three of that was spent in ministry. His time was precious. And he knew it. And I'm sure he tried to spend it as efficiently as he could. He made time to spend people He made time to spend with people in fellowship. He wasn't so busy that he couldn't go over and see someone. Couldn't go over and talk to someone. Not only did he do this for his friends, but he did this for people that he didn't know yet, like Zacchaeus, who was a weed living man. I had to resist saying that when I was reading. He gave them all the gift of his presence through his time. Most of us in today's world, we fill our time with all sorts of different things. There are so many things to do, so many things uh, for entertainment, for uh, learning. There's just a lot of stuff that's going on. But there are only 168 hours in the week. And if we use 40 to 50 hours working, and if we sleep about seven hours a night, which is the average, when we're sleeping another 50 hours, that's only 100 hours. What are we doing with the other third of our time? Are we using it or are we wasting it? Are we spending it studying or reading or watching TV, playing video games, eating on our phones, Facebook? How much time in a week do we waste that we could be spending with other people? How can you this Christmas season 
this year, be present with people that you're around. How many distractions can you put away from yourself when you're with other people? And be with them and talk to them and spend time with them. Can you call someone who you haven't talked to in a long time just to say hi, see how they're doing? Can you go visit someone? What can you do to be present with people with your time? The fourth way that Jesus gave the gift of his presence was through his heart. Now the shortest verse in the Old Testament is John eleven thirty five. 35. Does anybody know it? Answer. Jesus wept. That verse shows the humanity of Jesus more than many other verses in the Bible. He was human and he cried. He cried at the funeral of one of his friends. But that's not the only reason that he did it. John 11, 28 through 34 tells us, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling to you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now Mary came and where, to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He didn't just weep for his friend. He wept because his heart went out to the people who were weeping. He mourned with those who mourned. He gave his presence by being with them in their trouble. And he cried even though he knew a few verses later, he was going to go down to the tomb and raise Lazarus from the dead. But in that moment, he was compassionate and he was with them in their trouble. When people go through tough times of all kinds, uh, loss of a relationship, loss of a job, uh, maybe a traumatic injury or the loss of a loved one, the gift of presence is immensely valuable. You will never know how much it means to a person if you're just there with them in that time. If you come to them and mourn with them. Think about the people in your life. Do you know what they're going through? Your coworkers, even some distant friends or acquaintances, do you know what they're going through? so that you could go and be with them in their time of trouble. I would encourage you this Christmas to give the gift of your presence. Give them the gift of your heart and your compassion by going to people who are in trouble and being with them. The fifth way that Jesus gave 
the gift of his presence was through his life. This is Jesus' final gift to us. The gift of his own life and blood poured out for us on the cross. Go back to John 3.16 for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was his mission. Of all the things that he did, this was his mission. That a sinful mankind stuck in their rebellion would be redeemed to himself through the shedding of his blood. And we have to respond. Mark 15, 33-39 tells the story of his death. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran to him and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, well, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You know, people say a lot of things about Jesus. Not many in that situation would say what the centurion said, standing at the foot of the cross, watching a man die a criminal's death. Not many people would say in that situation, truly, this was the Son of God. C.S. Lewis, speaking about this, said that people can respond to Jesus in three ways. Or people can look at Jesus in three ways. Here's what he said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that is one thing we must not say. A man who me was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. We must decide for ourselves. Who was he? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Was he Lord? This is Lewis's trilemma. Which one are you going to choose? And if he is Lord, 
why don't we do what he says? The Bible commands us to give our presence in the same way that Jesus did. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Bible commands us to do the same sort of things that Jesus did. I don't mean that we're supposed to sell our homes and go be homeless and, and travel around as an itinerant preacher gathering disciples to us and saying really weird parables. I don't mean that at all. What I do mean is that we should give the gift of ourselves like Jesus gave the gift of himself. Don't neglect it. We need to spend time with people. Show them how much we care about them. Because if we do not, we are showing them how much we care about them. One of my mentors used to say that uh, when we interact with people, we always move them in one of two directions. Either through our actions and through our interactions with them, we bring them closer to Christ, or we shove them closer to the gates of hell. If you think about it, when you interact with someone, you are either doing one of those two things, implicitly, not intentionally. You're either helping them to gain a more full knowledge of Christ through watching you and through seeing you as a demonstration of love poured out for him like he was. Or you're just letting them go. Earlier this year, I was at a funeral for a person I really did not know very well. I'd only met them once. The reason that I was there was because it was a family member of a coworker of mine. And uh, I wanted to go and to be there to show the person that I care about them, that I cared about them enough to go to the funeral for some, a family member that, that I really didn't know. And it was a very emotional service because the person was not old, the death was not expected, they weren't sick, it was very sudden. The person was young, uh, maybe in her 40s. Very young. My heart completely went out to this family during the funeral. And I was able to be there with my coworker, showing him how much I cared about him by being in his presence, by mourning with him. Just this week, I got a Christmas letter from him. And in the letter, he talked about how much it meant that we were there with him. How much it meant to him that we were spending our time to be with him in his time of trouble. You will never know the difference that it will make in a person's life when you give the gift of your presence. They will see Christ through you. In a moment, the band is going to come back up and uh, we're going to have a time of response where we're going to take communion.
Here at Aletheia, we do that every week. Before you do take communion, I want you to meditate on this message. I want you to think about it. I want you to let it soak in. And think about how you can use the gift of your presence to bless other people. My challenge to you this morning is to be present this Christmas season. Be a friend to those who don't have any friends. Make sure you are aware of what's going on in their life. Don't let the rhythm and the season and the fast pace of this Christmas time carry you along and business as usual until you get through it. Be here. Wherever you are, be with the people you're with. See who you can put an arm around. See who you can touch on the shoulder and ask them how they're doing. Use your words to encourage them, to build them up, to defend them. Don't be a bystander. Don't be afraid to say something when you see oppression going on or when you see someone in a bad situation. Lift them up with your words. Where are you spending your time? Are you using it or are you wasting it? How can you remove the distractions in your life in order to be present with the people that you're with? How can you turn off your phone when someone might send you a Christmas message that doesn't really matter until tomorrow or when you have time to get it? How can we be present with people? Is someone around you going through difficult circumstances? How can you be with them through that and sit with them and mourn with them in the midst of it? How can you use the gift of your compassion to give them your presence? Most importantly, how are you responding to the gospel? Is there anyone in your life that doesn't know Christ who you can share the gospel with? A coworker, a friend, a family member, someone you know is not a believer, or someone that you know is a nominal Christian who believes it but doesn't act on it. How can you encourage that person and move them closer to Christ? How can you share the gospel through your actions, through your hands, through your words, through your presence? One thing that we're all very conscious of uh, in this Advent Conspiracy series is making sure that Christ is the center of it all. I challenge you not to let the social currents of this season leave you unchanged. Join with us and focus on Christ this year as we celebrate the Advent, the coming of Emmanuel. Father God, thank you for coming to us. You have given us a gift 
more precious than anything we have to compare. You've given us all that you are. God, I pray that you would let us return and give others of ourselves as you gave of yours. God, help them to see you through us and through our actions. Father, we love you. We thank you for all of your blessings to us. Amen.